0: Guys with me, um, my name is Simon. By the way, if I didn't introduce myself, and I'm the pastor at Grace City. If you are new to Grace City, very, very warm welcome to you. So glad you're here. Um, I hope this is a great experience for you. I hope that the, the sort of family atmosphere that we've been working very hard and praying very hard to cultivate here will help you to feel safe and a bit like Alpha, that this will be an experience where you can really be yourself. Um, no assumptions, not assuming that everyone here is just all into Jesus and religion. Um, in fact, I'm hoping that you're, you're here because perhaps you're trying to figure that out. And, and I hope that this can be a community where, that's, um, where you can take some steps in that direction. Sound good? Okay. With all that said, we are going to jump into the, the book that we've been studying through rather slowly for the last 20, 22, 23 weeks. We've been looking at one of the letters that a gentleman named the Apostle Paul wrote to the ancient uh, church in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. And uh, we've entitled this series, The Study Through the Book of 1 Corinthians Unlikely Church, because uh, as I've said many times so far, the church in Corinth was likely the most unlikely church to actually make it out of the first century intact. They had all sorts of interesting and difficult issues that they're wrestling through. And the the irony is that as we look through this book and we look at these people and we see the things that they're wrestling with and the questions they're asking and and the things they're confused about, it's like, yeah, 2,000 years later, like here we are asking the same questions, dealing with the same issues. So by studying this letter... God can speak to us as individuals and as a Jesus community in Portland, and hopefully in that way, uh, it'll be very, very helpful and worth our while. If you have a Bible, please go ahead and grab it and open it to the book of 1 Corinthians. It's New Testament, far right. Um, If you'd like to get a Bible, we have some in the boxes in the central aisle here. You're very, very welcome to grab one, and the words, as you can see, will also be right here on the screen. Just very quickly to set this up, I was so tempted, I'm being transparent now, but I was very, very tempted to actually skip over this passage. It's one of these tricky ones where you read it and you're like, ugh, what are you talking about? And we kind of ran into a similar sort of thing when we were going through chapter 11, a few chapters ago, I think it was like part, I don't know, 17, 18, I believe that message was entitled... Gender creation and hats. So check that one out if you want to know what that's all about. But this, this theme, I'm not even going to call it an issue. That would be way too negative. But this theme of gender distinction, it's a real thing in the scriptures. It's just male and female, different, men and women. Um, and apparently God created us that way that something of himself would be revealed in how men and women are different and how when we come together as one in our differences, something of God um, is revealed. So we want to wrestle with this. Now, obviously, we're living in sort of modern 21st century Portland, progressive, liberal, et cetera, et cetera. And so when we, we we're about to read this, like, just kind of grab your chair and just brace yourself for a little cultural shock, okay? It's, there's a bit of a jolt um, about it. Just take a deep breath, okay, and let's, let's approach God's word with as much humility as we can muster. Because our God is good, our God is powerful, and he is wise, this isn't just sort of random, archaic, you know, regressive old Uncle Paul kind of railing on women here. That's 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 not what's happening at all. This is God's word. And God is going to speak to us through it. So we really need to try to approach it with, with great humility and an openness to respond in obedience. Amen. Here we go. I'm actually reading out of the NIV this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 31. For you can all prophesy, in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people." Verse 34, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for women to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks that they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for your spirit that, who teaches us, who illuminates our hearts to be able to hear your voice through your word. I pray that in the next uh, few minutes or so, as we, we think carefully about these words, about your word, that Lord Jesus, you would be revealed. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Um, Some general words before we dig right into the the intricacies of what we're looking at here. Now, these are some things that I actually uh, offered for consideration when we were looking at gender creation and hats, chapter 11. It's the whole verse where Paul is saying, when you come together and you're prophesying and you're speaking in tongues... Um, men, you should pray and prophesy with your head uncovered um, and not long hair. Women, when you pray and prophesy, you should do it with your head covered and not short hair. Uh, So obviously, the hair, the length of the hair, the head covering, these are symbols that apparently are deeply meaningful, um, at least in the ancient context. Now, for us, the struggle is like, well, that doesn't quite translate those symbols or the application of the principle of headship and submission doesn't quite translate into our culture, so then there becomes the whole question of like, well, how do we, okay, if, if, if headwear, headgear doesn't have the same sort of significance in our culture, then what does that application look like? Big, long conversation debate about all of that. Um, now, what I offered in chapter 11, this is my point, is that when we come to difficult passages in the Bible, there's a few ways we can approach it. You might be thinking, like, well, don't, "What is it? What's difficult about this exactly?" I remember asking my uh, hermeneutics professor just a couple months ago. Actually, he, he asked he asked us the question in the class. Uh, you know, throw out some examples of like verses in the Bible that if we did not consider the historical and cultural context of what was being said, we might possibly misunderstand the intent, the original intent of the offer, and I said, well, 1 Corinthians uh, 14. And he very jokingly said, so what exactly is the problem? Uh, Some people might just happily take that approach. You might strongly disagree with that, um, but brothers and sisters in Christ might happily and dare I say, legitimately take that approach. And they that's, well, that, that would be. Can we go back one slide, please, so we can look at the, the one we're really talking about? They would say, when it says women should remain silent in the church, they say that, the plain meaning of that verse is plain. So it's just you know, no, no matter how you you know what you feel about it. So that would be one way to approach it. Now, I would I would be very adamant to argue. That that would be a very um, unthoughtful approach to the text. Um, In fact, I would say that that would be very poor hermeneutics. Hermeneutics being the art and science of biblical interpretation. How do we interpret? How do we understand the original intent of the author given historical and cultural context? So we need to be good Bible interpreters and take a big long step back. And say, okay, what's what is God really saying? Despite what might be obvious, quote unquote obvious, what is God saying? Um, we might be tempted to simply just ignore it. We could just, just, t- just tear that page out, or we could find some fancy sort of you know theological footwork to just some kind get around it, and be like, well, you know, that's probably one of those verses. I know what it is. It was probably a later edition. Right? So they just haven't gotten around to putting that footnote there where it says earlier manuscripts did not include this. And we'll just kind of just, just tear that bit out. And we can just totally ignore it. Um, could do that. I think that would just be, I don't know, denial. I mean, we, you know, I suppose you're, you're welcome to just rewrite the Bible. But in which case I'd say, well, if you rewrite the Bible, you're going to rewrite Jesus. And if you rewrite Jesus, you're, you're, you're just making up a new religion, which people do all the time. I'm not going to suggest that we do that. Not not really interested in that. Um, Thirdly, we could, I think this is probably what's more common, more subtle, but equally as unhelpful, we could pit Paul, the primary writer of the New Testament epistles, the author of 1 Corinthians, we could pit Paul against Jesus. Because we're all down with JC, but I don't know, Paul, sometimes he's just a little too edgy for my liking. And so we kind of get this thing in our mind, and I've, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of people, and they're like, yeah, I don't know about Paul. He seems like maybe he took Jesus and kind of, I don't know, added to it, tweaked it, and and he's come up with something, and you... You read this argument in scholarship, quote-unquote scholarship, quite regularly. Um, I, think it's, I think it's poor, extremely biased biblical interpretation. It's, basically, it's just another way to avoid dealing with what, in fact, the text is actually saying. Fourth approach, and this is what I recommend for us today. When you approach something in Scripture... That jolts you emotionally. Maybe it convicts you. Gosh, maybe, maybe it offends you. What we need to do at that point is say, "Okay, God, I am I am finite. I am limited. I am I am radically conditioned by my culture, by my upbringing, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. <sighs> Help. Help. An example um, that I, I love to use is when Jesus, I think it was John chapter six, um, he's preaching to the crowd, and he says something quite um, disturbing. I guess is probably the way I would put it to uh, to the crowd, and he's talking about if you want to follow me, you must eat my body and drink my blood. People are like, "What? Like, <laughs> what is he on about?" and and then his disciples say this is a hard saying who can listen to it and then Jesus asked them do you take offense at this and his disciples were like you know nodding uh, after this many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him so y- you could just decide like never mind I just I, I can't deal with this I don't want to deal with this so I'm going to just go find I don't know I'll, I'll just go find a new church or maybe I'll just try out a new religion or We can respond like the disciples in John chapter chapter 6. When Jesus says, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Or we can say in the words of the the man with the dying young boy in Mark chapter 9. When he came to Jesus and he asked Jesus to heal his boy. And Jesus could clearly sense the 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 unbelief in his voice and the man said i believe jesus help my unbelief that's that's just humility that's an acknowledgement of what i'm really feeling like this is just hard jesus this is a hard saying i believe help my unbelief lord you, you are god your word is perfect i am not lord help That's the principle, guys, we want to always take to God's word. Great humility. And even after 30 minutes of preaching on it, if we're still like, I don't know, I'm I'm still not convinced, I'm still wrestling with it, that's fine. Uh, Join an ecclesia and get around some people who can help you process that over time. Just keep coming to God with a heart of humility and confidence that he's good. He's trustworthy, he's powerful, he's wise. He is God. How's that? Reasonable? Okay. So what exactly is so, quote unquote, difficult about this passage? What is is hard about this? Now, you might be thinking, well, it's just obvious. Um, I had a very, very helpful, about an hour-long talk with my wife last night. We sat over the, the dining room table, and I said, Shirley, can I read something to you? And I read this. And I said, can, can you just talk to me, help me? Um, I'm not a woman. You totally are. So can we talk? Can, we, can you help me think out loud? And we did. And so from a woman's perspective, this likely feels extremely insulting. Okay, just on a purely emotional level. And I think that's fair to say. That's, that's not disrespectful towards God. It's not somehow trying to marginalize God's word. Like to a woman, this is quite likely very, very insulting just on a purely emotional level. Yeah? So that's one difficulty with the passage. Uh, Number two, from a hermeneutics perspective, so in terms of just really thoughtfully interpreting what, the original intent of the author, what Paul's actually saying, there is a wide range of understanding as to Paul's meaning here, despite what might initially appeal as like obvious. Um, I read 20 plus, 25 to be exact, commentaries on this passage in preparation. Um, most of them were like painfully boring, very, very technical. A few of them were super, super helpful. Out of those 25, and I'm talking about like mainstream, well-accepted within Orthodox Bible commentaries, the majority of them in some way or another espouse the, the interpretation that I'm going to propose now. Okay? Um, so the point is though, what's difficult with this passage is that it's actually not as straightforward and as simple as one might expect. Because if you read a small stack of commentaries, there's a lot of discussion and debate and variance on what exactly Paul is saying. Um, Number three most important concepts of doing thoughtful hermeneutics. Context, 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 context. We need to understand the context context. of of who Paul is writing to, and more importantly, the immediate context of the text itself. So I'm not just talking about ancient Corinth, because what we know about ancient Corinth is extremely limited. But the context of the text itself is extremely important in us understanding what it is, which is why I hate preaching in like little bite-sized chunks, because it's like the best way to remove ourselves from the context. But it's what we do, because no one's going to sit here for three hours as I read through the entire book of 1 Corinthians. Just where we're at. OK, what is Paul saying? First of all, in chapter 11 uh, verses five and 13, Paul has already acknowledged a woman's right to pray and to prophesy in the church, as long as they do it in a way that they're not disgracing their husbands i.e., headwear, length of hair, etc. So already he's acknowledged the right that men and women are praying and prophesying in the church. Now remember the context here is Paul is talking about how is praying and prophesying and speaking in tongues to be done in the gathering in a way that's orderly, peaceful, and of God. Okay, so that's the immediate context, and Paul's already acknowledged that men and women are allowed to pray and prophesy and presumably speak in tongues, if there's interpretation, in the gathering. Uh, We also know, this is is the the classic example, we know of at least four unmarried women who did prophesy in the New Testament, um, Acts 21, Philip's four unmarried prophetesses. Read Acts 21, it's very cool. Secondly, therefore... Paul isn't calling for total silence, but rather he's specifically prohibiting the women in Corinth from asking questions. Look at the context. Women should remain silent. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says, if they want to inquire. So if they want to ask a question, that's the context. So he's not, obviously, he's not calling for total silence. Otherwise, he would be contradicting himself. What he's saying is if a wife wants to inquire about something that uh, presumably their husband is saying, i.e. prophesying in church, that they should hold off, they should remain silent, and then have the conversation later on at home. So he isn't calling for total silence, but rather he's specifically prohibiting the women in Corinth from asking questions presumably of their husbands during the worship service. Thirdly, What questions, just to be crystal clear, what questions is Paul referring to? And again, to be totally true to the context, the quote-unquote inquiries that Paul is seemingly referring to here aren't just random questions, but questions to do with the wang of the prophetic words. Remember, in the context here, Paul is articulating to the church what does an orderly church service look like particularly when gifts of the Holy Spirit are being exercised? So what does it look like when prophetic words are being shared, when people are speaking in tongues, when people are interpreting those tongues, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? So in the context of praying in tongues and prophesying, if a woman has a question about that or about the Within the weighing or the judging of a prophetic word, if the wife of a husband is like, well, hang on a second, like, uh, I have a question about that, or possibly even, uh, I'd like to weigh in on that, honey, darling. And what ends up happening is this: it's this picture of wives basically challenging, or arguably even like, undermining. Their, their spouses in a public setting. So that, that could be problematic just like on many levels, um, speaking as a married man. Like that's just gonna, we'll just have a wonderful conversation about that later on when we get home. Um, whether I were to do it to Shirley or the other way around, it's just not cool. Um, okay, one, two, three. What questions specifically... And again, this, this could be an extrapolation, but it would seem that Paul is referring to questions, not just random questions, but questions to do with the quote-unquote weighing of the prophetic words being shared in the communal worship gathering. Okay, let me point out a couple of things here. Uh, verse 27 of chapter 14, Paul says, Only two or more should speak in tongues, but if there is no one to interpret, then let them keep silent. In verses 29 to 30, Paul again says, let two or three people prophesy and let the others weigh what is said. While such a revelation is being spoken, let the others remain silent. So twice ready, he's already commanded to certain people to be silent. Okay, so if you're praying in tongues, if there's not an interpreter, be quiet. If you're prophesying and you've got a revelation to share, wait your turn, be orderly, remain silent. Now for the third time, now he's speaking specifically to the situation with wives wanting to question men. Again, presumably sharing prophetic words to be silent. Verse 34, in the context of people speaking in tongues, in particular prophesying, it says women's or women or wives specifically should refrain from questioning their husbands in the public setting. Why? Are you guys with me so far? And This is all slightly technical, but this is, this is how you do hermeneutics. Why is it a problem that wives might want to weigh in on prophetic words that their husbands are sharing or giving in a public worship setting? Why is that a problem? Bringing what? War. War into the house of God. That's, that's a very strong word. Okay, let, let, me, let me nuance that a little bit. Because to do otherwise, particularly in the ancient world, this is important, we need to understand the historical context, in the ancient world, for a wife to do that would be a total disgrace. It, she would be disgracing her husband, is what she would be doing. Um, And yes, this would be sort of like marital war, as it were. Um, This would not be to uphold the sanctity of the marriage covenant. This is Paul's concern in chapter 14, and even more clearly, also his concern in chapter 11. Remember, the issue, if you were around for that sermon, wasn't so much head covering. That was the application. The principle of, that Paul was wanting to emphasize and make such a big deal about was that men and women, specifically husbands and wives were honoring one another in a way that reflected the heart of God. That's what's happening here. We have plenty of examples throughout all of scripture of women speaking and being spoken through by the spirit of God. (sighs) I don't think Paul's just having a bad day here, like just feeling slightly sexist and decides to throw in a little little side rant against women in Corinth this day. If you track with Paul's train of thought, chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, on into 15, what he's saying, what's really, really important, that is the people of God come together, we worship God, we exercise spiritual gifts. We relate to one another, and especially husbands and wives and men and women relate to one another that actually reflect God. Because when you come together to worship God, this is not just like religious people trying to like kill time. We're here to reflect back to God himself and to creation as a whole, the glory of our creator, When we worship God, when we sing songs, when we interact, when we prophesy like Hannah did this morning, we do it in a way, not perfectly, but in a way that reflects the heart of God himself. So husbands and wives relating to each other in a public worship setting, oh, this is a really, really big deal. It's a really big deal. Because marriage, arguably, unlike any other relationship in scripture, reveals something deeply mysterious and powerful about God and about the gospel itself. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter five. It's a great mystery that reflects the very love of God and how he relates with us himself. So, to summarize it, what is Paul concerned about here? Number one, order in the church in general. He's telling a lot of people to be quiet. You can, you can imagine like the church in Corinth, it's just total chaos. People talking over each other, people just like blurting out in tongues and like, you know, wives, like, of course, in the ancient context, the male and men and women would have been segregated, so it would have been like women, like, what, what are you saying, honey? Like, well, I don't understand. Like, what was that word? And like, I, I don't know. Like, I'm speculating. But it was, it was clearly chaos. It was clearly chaos. And Paul's saying, order, order. The God we're worshiping is not a God of chaos. He's a God of peace. Secondly, What is Paul concerned about? That men and women are interacting with each other in a way that's honoring God's vision of marriage, which is supremely a matter of honoring the character of God himself. Because in the family of God, marriage is a spiritual picture of how God loves us, and it's a mysterious enactment of the gospel itself. Is that clear? Now, all that's, that, that's, that's my view, and I would say this is where we stand um, as, as a church, this Grace City. This is where we land. Plenty of debate out there about it. This would be what I would uh, categorize as a, a, debate, a, two, a debate issue. We don't die over this. I hope we don't even divide over this. We could have some very vigorous debates about this for sure. And then we could get our eyes back on Jesus and, and get get back to the mission of reaching lost people. So we could debate it, but this is where we land as a church, which is why we have a female worship leader, which is why um, my wife, like, from time to time, will come up and share a prophetic word and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. You might have some questions about, well, where do we stand in issues of, like, uh, women in leadership? What about, like, female elders or do, do women get to preach and teach here at Grace City? Um, that's not the sermon for another time. <laughs> Let me ask this question: How can we begin the healing process so that men and women can begin loving and respecting each other in a way? Uh, that does reflect the beauty of our Lord and consequently blesses the world around us, so i, I don 't want to forget the fact that when we read this, many people, particularly women, might feel like very like insulted. Shirley described it, so my wife grew up in the wake of of apartheid South Africa, where she saw firsthand black people um, being abused and and injustice radical offensive, wrong, evil, injustice. And she said, Simon, this, this is only an analogy, but this is how I would describe how I feel when I read this. It would be like, um, just to use a slightly extreme, extreme analogy, if, like, if I was reading, if you were a black man in America and I was to read this and just erase the word woman and insert the word black person, I want all the black people to remain silent in the church. You'd be like, whoa. Why? Like, this doesn't, this doesn't seem to align with the heart of the gospel. And the reason why that would seem so extremely offensive, well, on many levels it would be offensive, but primarily because in our country and in my wife's country, black people were the recipients of injustice. They were abused. They were oppressed. Evil was committed against them. For generations, and now you're saying to be quiet, women in our country have suffered injustice for generations. Like, hopefully we're all aware of this. And we're now sort of entering a a time as a nation, as a culture, where uh, people, particularly women, have the ability to, like, speak out. Like there's ways to, it's like we're not living in the 50s anymore. And so it's coming out. Me Too's real. And it's good. It's good. Anytime there's an injustice, the person or the people who've suffered in the injustice need to be able to speak out and say that's wrong. That is wrong. But typically what happens is that In addressing the injustice, there's also a whole world of hurt and pain, insecurity. That's a part of that response. Injustice needs to be corrected, but how do we actually go about healing as a people? Or do we just just watch the pendulum to swing back and forth, back and forth? Who's got the power now? Who's offended now? Who's gonna, you know, who's gonna... That's, that's not healing. That's war. That's, that's gender war. That's kind of where we're at now. It's where, it's where we're living. The Bible doesn't want to just say, okay, who gets to win the fight? Who gets the power now? The Bible teaches us the way of healing and reconciliation. So that we can be men and women, even husbands and wives see the beauty in the way God created us distinctly and how when we love each other and respect each other and honor one another in the way that God has intended us to, it's a beautiful picture of what God is like. Where do we start? Let me just, I need to wind up, but let me share a few closing thoughts. We need to start with Jesus. We need to start with Jesus. Philippians 2, 6 says that though Jesus was in the form of God, though he was in essence divine, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, it wasn't to be wrestled out of the, the grips of God. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is our example of a leader. He was a male leader. And the son of God who submitted himself to the loving authority of his father. In Christ, male and female, we see the perfect example of what a leader looks like. Someone who has power and how it's to be used to bless and someone with power who voluntarily humbles himself out of loving authority of Father God. So we start with Jesus. Secondly, I want to speak to men. Men, we need to repent for not loving and leading like Jesus now you'd say that's not fair. Why do you always pick on the men? Not picking on men. <sighs> the Bible does not apologize for calling men the head and and wives to submit to their husbands i'm not going to water that down I'm just not. There is a clear distinction between male and female God created man in his image he made the male and female man first and out of man came the woman and god set the precedent for this divine interaction between men and women men are supposed to reflect the headship of god and women in marriage are supposed to reflect the submission of god that's trinity that's that's the godhead all together in one com- community equal but distinct in how they engage and interact Um, so why, why would it feel like I'm picking on men? This is how God rolls. If we are to see our society, and particularly women healed, in the wake of injustice that they have suffered, then it is on the man as a leader to initiate that process. We can't simply just keep pointing to the verse And like saying it over and over and over. We can't just say it louder. We can't just post it in all caps. What did God do? Amen, thank you. What did God do? Well, he starts by saying it, and he gives us the law. He gives us the law. And he says it over. And he sends his prophets to remind us. He sends more prophets to even warn us. If you don't love each other this way and honor me this way, things are going to go incredibly pear-shaped. And that's exactly what happened. But what does God do next? He doesn't just keep screaming from heaven, do it like this. He gets off of his throne. And God the Father, the leader, initiates the healing process, not just through more louder words, but through loving, self-sacrificial action. He steps up to the plate. He takes responsibility. And not in a condescending way. Not say, hey, ladies, come on, get a grip, be secure. No, he washes his disciples' feet. He humbles himself to the point of death. He takes the power that he has and uses it to pour out his own blood life. He uses it to serve. He uses it to build up. And he initiates the process. Men, that's on us. That's, that's on us as a husband. If I want to lead my wife, I can't just point to the Bible verse and say, trust me or else. That's not how God rolls. God earns our trust by demonstrating his love, and faithfulness. I've had to work 10 years, I I don't mean to say it like in a depressing way, but I've worked very, very hard to earn my wife's trust. Because she's an incredible woman. She's a strong woman. She's a leader. She prophesies like hardly anyone else I've ever known. She disciples my children in a way that makes me I feel proud as a father. Thank you. If I want to lead her in a way that reflects Jesus, I have the responsibility to earn her trust, to lay down my life and to serve her in a way that actually reflects the love and the faithfulness, the character, the heart of God. sisters some of you in here I'm just going to say it you've been abused statistically there's probably at least a handful of you in here who have been raped I know that there's men in here who have also been abused for sure which is why men we are the bride of Christ and we need healing in our own way but today I want to speak to the women who have been abused and I, I felt in my conversation with Shirley last night, just, just overwhelmed in my heart, that, uh, that confession and repentance is in order. In scripture, you see examples of entire, um, you, you see leaders repenting and confessing sin on behalf of entire nations. And I, I feel strongly in my heart that I want to I wanna take responsibility for my fellow man and say, um, I'm deeply, deeply sorry for the men who have abused you, who have used their power to uh, manipulate, coerce, to use you. I don't know, yeah, I'm not trying to just stir up some big emotional moment. I hope to God that some of you have never had to experience that level of abuse, but I know some of you have. And wherever you're at and processing through that, maybe for some of you you've never even been able to get the word rape out of your mouth, because it's just it's just too hard. You've never you've never seen any sort of justice or, or retribution take place on your behalf. And I wanna say I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for where men have failed uh, to use power that we've been entrusted by God to to love you in a way that reflects Jesus. Would you please forgive us? Would you please uh, begin doing the very hard and painful work of learning to trust again? Because ultimately, when one human being trusts another, it's a miracle from God. My wife submits to my leadership, not because I'm like the best leader. Oh, if only it were true. It's because she trusts Jesus. And when we look to God's word together, we we see things in here that are so challenging and so unlike anything else that you see demonstrated in our very broken war torn world and Jesus says trust me let me teach you to love like I love let me teach you to to submit like I submit let me teach you husband and wife how to relate together in a way that's confounding that's provocative, that's beautiful, that reveals something deeply mysterious about the very love of God. And I would argue that it's not just a husband and wife thing. You you may never marry, that's okay. Jesus never married, the apostle Paul never married. We can still relate to each other as men and women in a way that reflects the heart of God. We can honor women as our sisters. Sisters, you can honor me and my brothers as brothers in Christ. And that too can reflect something very, very beautiful and powerful about the love of God in Christ. Can we stand together, please? Guys, we're going to, um, our worship team is going to obviously lead us in a time of response. I want to invite you to um, make your way either to the front or to the side. If you're an ecclesia leader in the room, why don't you just kind of stand along the periphery someplace and and make yourself available to anyone who would like prayer. uh, Man or woman, if you feel the need to repent yourself. Um, you can do that if you need prayer for healing please do that as we worship together I want to invite you to take communion the bread and the juice um, very simple powerful reminders of God uh, his gift in Jesus who he is and what he's done when he died for us on the cross so whenever you're ready I'd like to invite you to take communion receive prayer and worship as we close